Hello and welcome to the Wingnet Travel Podcast with me, James Hammond. Personally, I have been to 50 countries. I've met so many people in my travels that I want to bring them on this podcast and get their story on record. I have plenty of tips and stories to share with you as well. Are you a backpacker or a traveller or gap year student or simply someone who loves to travel? Then this is the podcast for you. Throughout the weeks and months, you'll get many guests and solo episodes where I try to cover all range of subjects within travel. This is a casual and informative travel podcast to inspire you to travel in the future. Do you fancy some bonus content with this episode? Then fear not. If you start to my Patreon today, by going on to www.patreon.com forward slash travel podcast, then you'll find these extra features every week for Monday and Friday's episode. One bonus episode every month, some ad-free content, some early access to episodes, the exclusive added travel must-have feature on every episode, patron shout-out, some ad hoc bonus episodes, you'll get a copy of my digital travel planner which is available on Etsy and you'll get my monthly Winging It Travel podcast magazine. If this takes your fancy, you can sign up for £4, $7.50 Canadian, $6 US a month and I really thank you for supporting the podcast. Hope you enjoy the podcast, thanks for listening and supporting this and I'll see you soon. Cheers James. Let's get into the episode. So hello and welcome to this week's episode and I'm joined by Erin Hines from the Alpaca My Bags podcast. Today, Erin and I are going to discuss sustainable travel, travel privileges, and also Erin's podcast. This will be a super important episode as we need to discuss these crucial aspects of tourism in the world, but also the certain privileges a lot of us have in terms of travel. Of course, we're going to delve into alpaca my bag, some personal travel, and some personal travel history. Erin, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. Thank you for joining us. So where are you from and where are you currently based? I'm originally from Ottawa, Ontario, and then I lived many years in Montreal, and now I'm in Toronto. Nice. Can you speak French? A little bit. I grew up in Ottawa, and in Ottawa, it's very multilingual, so I actually learned French in school, but I've been in Toronto 10 years now, and so I think my French is pretty bad because I have not used it in a long (laughs) time. (laughs) I would be embarrassed to try to speak French. (laughs) In Montreal, is it it crucial? Is it not? I, I keep hearing... So Quebec, we know it is, need it, but like Montreal is like it's half and half. I'm not sure if you need it or not, like crucially You can it. manage without it, but it's definitely good to be able to speak at least basic French. It's helpful. I would say, yeah, I know people who've lived there who don't speak any French at all and they, they manage just fine. I'd mm. say most people in Montreal do speak English, like even if French is their first language. Uh, okay. And you learn it in school, right? Like back in the day, you, everyone learns mm-hmm. it, right? Yeah, I don't know if it's the same across Canada, but in Ontario, it's pretty common to learn French uh, as you're going up through school. Yeah, it's interesting because I've got a few friends here who I work with who are you know, such a big Asian population here in Vancouver that arguably say you don't need French at all. You probably need Mandarin. No, no I think if you're on the west coast of Canada, you, you don't. Because actually, and people don't realize this, but Quebec isn't the only region of Canada where French is spoken. It's actually spoken quite a lot in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia as well and so really like the eastern side of canada is Mm. quite french speaking but i think the west coast not at all i don't know that i've ever heard french spoken there no i I don't think it's a thing but i would arguably say because half the population here has got some sort of asian uh, background that you probably Mm. would need probably mandarin or something like that Mm -hmm. um, if you want to go to because there's certain areas here where and it's awesome but you go to like richmond just further south of here there's certain areas where they just speak mandarin right it's not even in english so if you want to be super multicultural here, it'd be good to learn that language. Definitely. And like a lot of my friends have like their parents who don't speak English. 
Mm-hmm. So they have to like yeah. translate things, have to sort like documents yeah. and bills out and all that sort of stuff. It's quite interesting. Yeah, yeah I wish I was fluent in a second language, but ugh, I'm terrible with learning languages, unfortunately. <laughs> I tried with Duolingo and even Duolingo oh, couldn't help me. <laughs> I know. An app tried me as well. Like, I just couldn't do it. Anyway, I've had a little bit of success is going somewhere and yeah. just trying to get by and use the app of like, <laughs> You read what it says and you can't remember it you use it day to day that's the only way i can really learn yeah <laughs> but everyone's different right it's a shameful because yeah. i interviewed my guest this week she speaks six languages so, oh jealous six <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah there you go puts me to shame anyway so you set the po- travel podcast about sustainable travel and before we get to that what inspired you maybe before an interest in travel was there a period in time was there maybe one trip you remember when you're younger what was the thinking there yeah I always tell people I didn't actually travel that much as a kid um my parents were a single income family there were three kids in the family so vacation was cottages and staying within Canada mostly so we we never went that far from home um I got on a plane for the first time when I was 16 my mom sent me to the Netherlands to see family there yeah um so that was the first time I was on a plane But I would say what inspired me to travel was my parents, even though they didn't travel with us, they had traveled a lot together before they had kids. My mom had done like around the world trip for several months and Mm. my parents had traveled through India together. When I was growing up, they would always tell us about these trips and we had photo albums all over the house. And so even though we didn't travel a lot as a family, my parents really inspired me because they made discussion about travel and about the outside world an active part of our life. Mm. Um, So even though I didn't travel, you know, like even by 16, there were places I knew I wanted to go eventually. Um, So after that first trip to the Netherlands, I started saving money. And I think I was 18 when I did my first backpacking trip. And the rest is history. Ever since then, I've been traveling like frequently. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's how it started. How how was that first trip to Netherlands? Was that quite a bit of a, was it a shock? Or were you like straight into it? It's fine. Like, how was it? It's funny you ask that. I haven't really thought about this. I don't think it was. It was an interesting trip because my mom, my mom's family is Dutch. So like she was born here, but her, her parents spoke Dutch and yeah. like my, my childhood had a lot of Dutch influence. Mm-hmm. And so going to the Netherlands, I wouldn't say there was much culture shock or anything because I was quite exposed to like Dutch culture already. I knew Dutch food. I knew the language. Um, yeah, and I was visiting family, so I I, mm. I was sort of insulated because I was with people that I knew there. But I would say, like, getting on a plane by myself at 16 when I'd <laughs> never been in an airport by myself <laughs> was quite an experience. My parents, I guess, really trusted my ability to, like, <laughs> figure things out. I do remember my mom, like, prepping me a lot and just, like, walking me through right. this is what happens in an airport. Because they didn't get, like, when, a, you know, you can sometimes, if kids start traveling, you can get um, the airport to, like, yes bring someone in to, like, make sure the kid gets to the gate. They mm. didn't do that. They literally just dropped me wow. off at the airport and I somehow managed. <laughs> I kind of like that. I like it, I think. <laughs> the thing is, and I've been thinking about this lately because you know for sure in Canada, like, air travel is a total mess right now it wasn't like that in those days I was not this would have been like 2006 yeah at that point like your plane left on time (laughs) there were delays you wouldn't like be stopped midair and landed like in a random airport which is what happened to me a few months ago 
Um, so I guess my parents had faith in air travel. Wow. I don't know that I would at this point, but yeah, it was a different time back then. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to harp on too much about it. I'm sure we'll discuss COVID when we come down the line on the notes, but there is a pre and after that, isn't there? I think. Yeah. But there's also, I don't know what, what period of time you'd cut it off, but in those days, 2006, you say? Yeah. Yeah, it was normal. I think that's the year I got on the plane for the first time, 2006. Yeah, and it was never even a thing to think about. It might be delayed or your luggage won't get there, but it just yeah. seems a bit of a mess at the minute. I don't know if it's because of COVID or it was a mess before COVID. I'm not sure. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. I've done some reading about it. It seems like it's like a whole mixture of issues, but a lot of them were really perpetuated by COVID. So, mm. yeah, I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully things get better in the next few years. But 16, though, that is a heck of a, heck of a journey to... <laughs> go at that age I, I can't even imagine at that age going even 18 <laughs> was a problem right yeah you know I, I, like, I went to Germany I, that was my first trip yeah okay I never thought now that you've brought this up I'm gonna ask my parents next time I see them like how did you feel about sending me I wonder if they were nervous <laughs> at all they didn't seem to be <laughs> no 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 yeah, absolutely <laughs> I don't know that they would have sent me to like any other country the Netherlands yeah. they knew I was safe because it was with family so so can your mum speak dutch mm -hmm. but she didn't speak dutch yeah. to you she did a little bit oh. but like i mentioned earlier my like my ability to remember languages is really bad <laughs> <laughs> i um, thought if you're, you're if you're like really young you might have like just learned yeah. it and that would have been fluent but. part of it was that my dad is not dutch so he didn't speak dutch and my mom has told us that she didn't want him to feel like left out of conversation mm. so she didn't speak dutch like she would speak dutch with us when he wasn't around but if he was in the room and i think this is like totally fair she yeah. didn't want him to feel left out and if yeah. she raised all three kids to be fluent in dutch and we were just like having all these conversations <laughs> and my dad couldn't understand <laughs> so yeah i get it part of me is sad because i do think if she had really um like immersed us when we were young kids it probably would have stuck but yeah i also understand why she didn't uh didn't push dutch when we were kids yeah that's fair enough what do you think about your parents who traveled before you lot came along and well, I guess it would have been the 90s, right? Uh, oh, I think uh, 80s it was and 90s. earlier. It was the 80s. Oh, yeah, wow. Because my sister was born in 86. So it was the early 80s. Oh, it was before you were born. Yeah, um, not, oh, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, their stories are amazing. I love hearing about their travels because they were mostly in Asia yeah. and their photos. And it was just a different time, a different way of travel. Um, my mom, like, always tells me about how her parents were really nervous, obviously, because yeah. she did the first part of the trip, like just with a girlfriend of hers. So she would write a letter home every other week. And that's how they knew she was okay. Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm like, these days, I WhatsApp with my mom like every day when I'm traveling. <laughs> different time, different world. It has got yeah. a certain nostalgia to it, hasn't it, I think? It does, yeah, definitely. I do wonder if it's better now, the way we can connect easily with mm -hmm. people you meet or even back home or whether you would prefer to go back in the day. I do ask that question sometimes at the end, what people think is the best era to travel in, but I can't quite decide. Yeah. If you want to find out, go to Cuba. I backpacked around Cuba for oh, yeah. three or four weeks and you can get on Wi-Fi, but it's, it's a mission. A lot of work okay. goes into it. So for yeah. the most part, you just don't. Um, and that was the first time in my life that I really had to rely on guidebooks and people and just like talking with oh, people wow. to figure out how to get from place to place and such. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's unfortunate that they don't like have access to Wi-Fi freely like we do in most of the world. But if you want to experience what it's like to travel sort of back in time, that's a place where you really, you really can. Okay, I do want to go to Cuba. It's on my list. And also, I interviewed Frank a few episodes ago who's hitchhiking in Africa at the minute. And mm. he took two weeks to respond because he was in Angola and he had no internet at all. Whoa. So oh. I guess if you want a bit more of an experience of not being connected to the world, that's another place to go as well. Some countries in Africa, I think. Yeah, cool. Because um, we had two parts of that episode and it took like two months to get that recorded. Um, because he's just hitchhiking around, right? It's just hard to get like stable internet to do a call. So yeah, um, yeah it's interesting to see what he was saying about that. Yeah. What type of traveler would you describe yourself as? No one's ever asked me this. I don't know. Because I think that I, I have like different ways that I travel, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. I think I've become a different traveler depending on the type of trip that I'm okay. on. Yeah. I think like... The constants, though, are that I'm not I'm not a fancy traveler. I wouldn't say I'm like a budget traveler, but I'm definitely a person that like will go for the cheaper hotels for, and like still hostels. I'll still stay yeah. in hostels all the time. Um, I never like kind of outgrew that phase of my yeah, travel same. life. Yeah, I still go for like street food. I yeah, I guess I am a budget traveler in a sense. Um, mm -hmm. And I'd say I'm also pretty adventurous. When I travel, I like to get outdoors and I like to have like unique experiences like most people do. Yeah. Um, and I would say I tend to travel slow. My partner and I, especially when we travel together, we do not jam pack our days. We like to have a very relaxed day. Mm -hmm. um, we don't over plan very much. Usually we'll plan like maybe one or two things for a day. And then we leave like a big chunk of the day to just do whatever feels right that could be like sitting in a cafe or just wandering around a neighborhood yeah. or even like going back and just like taking a nap um we don't put a lot of pressure on ourselves when we travel so i think that's pretty constant about when we travel anywhere okay and do you have the ability to work when you travel or... i do the okay. problem is my partner doesn't so i'm fully remote right. and i'm allowed to work from anywhere yeah um, so i have done that um i worked last year from or no, that was this year. In the spring, I worked from Puerto Vallarta for a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but my partner is able to work from anywhere in Canada. So we have worked from Nova Scotia and PEI. Later this year, we're going to go actually out your way to uh, Victoria and work from Victoria oh, yeah. for a few weeks. Yeah. So it's been great being remote because we're we're definitely being able to spend more time in other parts of Canada. Yeah. Um, but working abroad, it's when I do that, I have to go solo, which kind of sucks because I mm -hmm. met him. But it is, yeah. it is. And, I, and listen, I still love solo travel, so yeah. I just can't go for very long because I start to miss them too much. Okay, yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that because of insurance reasons, you think? Because I can't travel yeah. and work remotely from my job because I'm supposed to be in BC. That's the official. Yeah. But that's the only reason, insurance reasons. Yeah, it's funny because my company is about the same size as my partner's and for some reason, his company like can't support it, but mine can. Mm. Um, there are some limitations, like my company, the max is 30 days in another country. So if you were to Got do it. it like long term, you would have to change countries every 30 days. Oh, you can travel the world. 12 you countries, said, yeah. 12 months. Truly. <laughs> and still work. I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to do that, but Lucas will probably divorce me if I do. So. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Got to make choices, haven't you? Yeah. And <laughs> your purpose of travel, 
do you have a purpose when you travel? I guess you say new experiences. I think that's a popular yeah. one, but is, do you I'd also that? say I love to learn. I was one of those geeks who really loved school. Um, okay. If I could just be in school for the rest of my life, I would be. And I think of travel as sort of a type of school. I don't think it's that way for everyone, but I just, I really view it as like a way to learn. Mm. Um, whether that's like learning about a new culture or picking up a bit of language, learning about different customs, um, learning about nature. I just, there's so much you can learn when you're traveling. And yeah, I really thrive from that. I actually read once this stat, was it a stat? It might've been like National Geographic or something. It was an article where they did a study and found that when people travel, they remember things really well mm. and it's because you're being exposed to new things all the time and this is not what happens in our day-to-day -day life like in my day-to-day -day life it's pretty routine there's not a lot of like new stuff happening so mm -hmm. your brain doesn't register it the same way so this is why travel like part of why travel has such an impact on us because our brain because it's all new remembers it better um, and I think that's part of why people get such a thrill out of traveling yeah and I guess that's why people also leave right their mm -hmm. nine to five, I want to say mundane job, they might like it, but just that day to day yeah. routine just to change it up. Yeah, Especially in the modern generation, I, I think there's no qualms now where people would take two or three months off. It's a pretty done thing. I think it's almost, I want to say it's expected, but if you saw it in a CV or resume, it wouldn't be a surprise. Definitely. I quit my job a couple of years ago to travel for, I think I was gone like nine or 10 months. Yeah. And um, a lot of people were like, oh, good luck. This is going to ruin your <laughs> career. And <sighs> never does i'll give you it did not my career is fine i came home and i got another job <laughs> so people get very freaked out by that yeah i think also people get freaked out so for me getting a job is easy in the sense i would pretty much do anything to a degree yeah um if you've got a skill set where you can maybe just learn something pretty quickly or you can do you can, you can work computers or systems there's always going to be a job out there but some people are so siloed in that one role right they, they would fear mm -hmm. that they can get that job somewhere else yeah. and that would scare them but for, if you can get yourself in a position where you don't mind what you're doing yeah and you can adapt i think there's always a possibility to quit and get another job when you're done yeah absolutely the and that's the thing you have to be open to like to to a bit of chaos like when i came back from that trip i didn't get yeah. a job right away yeah i yeah. worked in the service industry for a couple months and then eventually got a job like related to my field um but yeah as long as you can like put up with that i think anyone can do it really yeah and it shouldn't scare people to kind of quit that job or even take a sabbatical if it's possible i don't know if it's possible yeah. these days but people should really explore that option and don't be scared to maybe think that they won't they're not gonna get a job ever again yeah. right now actually there's loads of jobs i think well definitely vancouver anyway yeah so it's not a problem and yeah. if, if you're getting headhunted whilst you're in a job now well then there's always gonna be a job when you come back isn't there yeah <laughs> And your outlook on travel, has it changed since you've kind of done this podcast, the Apaka Bags podcast? Has it changed? Yes, I would say, I wouldn't say my outlook on travel has changed. I think the way that I travel has changed mm -hmm. um, simply yeah. because I started this podcast because I was curious and wanted to learn about sustainable traveler or sustainable traveling um, and responsible tourism. And on the show, like I bring on guests to share their expertise about these issues. Yeah. And I learned so much in making the show. And over the years, I've been making it now for around four years. 
over the years, I've just like put into practice the things that I learn on the show. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, like before I made alpaca my bags, I was in Cambodia, I think it yeah. was Cambodia, and I did like an elephant experience where you go like into a jungle and it was billed as like a sustainable and like responsible way to see elephants mm. um, because it was a reserve. So we went into the jungle and we got to like feed the elephants and wash them in a river. And at the time I felt I had made a good choice that I had yeah. done all the right things and like done my research and found the right place to have this experience. In making the show, I interviewed Natasha Daly, who is a journalist for National Geographic, and she yeah. spent three years uh, researching treatment of animals, um, especially in Southeast Asia, on these like reserves and yeah. places where like people can go and interact with, especially elephants. And I learned that like any interaction with one of these animals isn't isn't good because any interaction you're having is something that they had to train that animal to do. So the most responsible way to like experience wildlife is from afar with zero interaction, zero touching. Um, so now that I know that, I make wow. different choices. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'm just bringing like little things that I learned from the show into the way that I travel. So I, I think I would hope that I'm a better traveler now than I was a couple years ago. Um, but it's it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. I think it's okay to like make mistakes and and just adjust as you go and as you learn. Okay, I done the same thing in Thailand. It's weird at the time. You think you're doing okay? We didn't do much research. We just found one and went there, right? Yeah. And the classic like sit on an elephant. Now I look back and cringe at it. It's like, what was I doing? Mm -hmm. Washing the elephant. I mean, the act itself is amazing, but it's definitely not natural, and you should not be doing it. What's weird at the time, and I, I did think this at the time, is the classic one when you touch the tigers, right? They're in yeah. a line and you line up and you sort of touch them. Already you're thinking, oh, why is he not eating my hand off? And then the guy who sort of owned the, the whole reserve, this is in Northern Thailand near Chiang Mai, he's Australian. One of the first things he said was like, people will tell you that they're drugged and that they're, you know, they're, they're trained to do this, but they're not. They're naturally brought up with human beings. That's why they're nice around you. I'm like, well, if that's all true, why do you need to point it out? so blatantly like yeah. wouldn't you just not say anything and just people go oh yeah it seems natural like you didn't need to say it that yeah. piqued my sort of thinking for a bit and then I carried on unfortunately yeah but yeah. I was going to ask actually based on that no matter what research you do across let's say Southeast Asia as an example of that type of trip where you sit on an elephant they're all bad in terms of nature and animals like there's not, not even one of them that you could arguably say is all right they're all like shouldn't be doing that is that the kind yeah. of thing yeah, I mean, I can share with you the link to Natasha's article yes. about this. But yeah, like her take is basically that you should just never interact with an animal at all. Okay. Um, any interaction should be from afar. So right. watching from a distance. So like safaris, for example, are actually like a really responsible way to enjoy wildlife because okay. you're just a visitor in that animal's habitat. You're not actually like connecting with them and touching them and feeding them or anything. Yeah. Um, there should be no connection like between the human and the animal um yeah because basically like any time you interact with an animal that animal has been taken from its habitat and trained yeah. to interact with you and when you participate in those kinds of activities um your consumer dollar is shaping that industry mm -hmm. so the more that we go and pay for these experiences the more the people on the other end think oh i just got to grab this animal train it to do this and then continue continue the issue so we can make change with how we spend our money and one way to do that is to opt for um 
experiences that are just observatory versus interactive when it comes to animals. Okay, got it. Yeah, it's good to know. I think it's quite important for people to understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, before we crack on with sustainable travel and travel privileges, you mentioned Cuba, actually. Can I press on Cuba, your trip there? Because okay. I've not been there. I fear that I'm leaving it too late. You know, as time goes on, will it become more traveled, more blogged mm-hmm. about, more written about? But you went there. So when did you go to Cuba? 2014 or 15? Nice. Around then, yeah. Yeah. And you were there for a month? Nearly, yeah. And what was your experience there? Was that after when they declared that they would let tourists in like quite willy-nilly? Because no, I can't um, quite keep up with Cuba where it's at with in yeah. terms of the rules. I mean, Cuba has always been quite open for Canadians. Um, right. It's not for Americans. Yes, and actually, right. I met a lot of British people there, um, a lot of Europeans, but no Americans. Um, Americans can only get to Cuba if they fly. I think it's through Mexico. You have to connect. Um, but you can't fly directly from the U.S. to Cuba. Right. Yeah, you know, like Cuba, I'm sure you know now, at least in this part of Canada, is like a very popular destination yes. for your like midwinter break mm-hmm. um, for some sunshine. So there's a huge culture of like resorts in Cuba, but you can leave the resort and just backpack around um, and stay in uh, basically homestays, like you stay in homestays oh, yeah. all throughout the country. Yeah. Um, there's definitely less tourists than like other regions I've traveled for sure, because I think a lot of people like just associate Cuba as like a resort region. Mm. Yeah, it was more challenging to travel there than other areas because like I mentioned, there's no Wi-Fi. So you do have to rely on guidebooks and um, you do need some Spanish. Luckily, I was with a friend who spoke pretty decent Spanish. So nice. she was able to help us <laughs> get around and like get transport. <laughs> But yeah, it's one of, I would say it's like one of my favorite countries that I've backpacked through and I'll definitely be going back to do it again because it was just an amazing experience. So if you're, yeah, if you're staying at homestays, right, and there's not much Wi-Fi, how do you get transport around the country mm-hmm. unless you hit, yeah. hitchhike? But how, how do you do that? So the key was we booked our first, they're called Casa Particulares. We booked our first one online. We were able to find yeah. one in Havana. Um, so we stayed in that uh, homestay. And we told the person running the homestay where we were headed next. And she called ahead and booked us our next one. Right. Um, and basically it's a network. So that's what you do. You just tell the the owner or like the, the people living in the homestay with you yeah. um, where you're headed next. And they'll usually organize something for you. In other cases, like we showed up in one region, we had nothing booked. I forget why, like we just hadn't asked our, uh, we always called them Casa Mamas because it was it was always like the, the woman of the house <laughs> yeah. who would run the homestay. Um, we hadn't asked our Casa Mama to like hook us up. So we got to this, this area and we it was called Vinales, a little town, and we had nowhere to stay. And yeah. so we were just knocking on doors because that's what you do. And we just knocked on doors like going up the street. And eventually um, one of the Casa Mamas was like, I don't have space, but I'll, I'll find you one. Mm. And she just like came out onto her porch and started yelling down the street. And so everyone was coming out and yelling to each other, like, who has space? Because <laughs> <laughs> the town was really, really busy. Um, but eventually, like, they sent us on our way and they found a spot for us to, to stay. So there was always a way. You, you, you figure it out as you go. Yeah. One, one thing that was, like, really fun was 
uh, we met other backpackers and because there's not tons of backpackers in Cuba, like the ones that there are, you just become friends with. Yeah. And we met this woman and we really liked her and we said, okay, like we're, we're leaving tomorrow. And she was planning to come to the same place as us like a couple of days later. So we pulled out our guidebooks and we said, okay, let's meet on this date in this <laughs> restaurant. And we circled in the guidebook, the restaurant we would meet in. And we were like around seven o'clock. And <laughs> nowadays you're just like, you add someone on Facebook and you like Facebook messenger them. But we legitimately like didn't know if she would arrive. And we went to that restaurant that night. And when, when she like turned the corner <laughs> to come up into the restaurant, we're all laughing our heads off like, yes, like it worked. <laughs> it's like traveling in the 90s, eh? Is that, is, that yeah. is literally traveling, all, all your parents when they were traveling. It, yeah. it is that era where, yeah, unless you, somehow can phone him which wouldn't even be possible it'd be like yeah this place this time yeah <laughs> oh that's awesome i almost want to experience that but it's getting tough these days isn't it with yeah countries that just have wi-fi but maybe i don't, I don't know what cuba's like now with that i'm not sure yeah i'm not sure how much it's changed i do think like it's still not very accessible wi-fi like you can get wi-fi it's possible yeah it's just kind of a pain like usually it's in a public space because it's all government run so if you need Wi-Fi, you have to go to a specific park yeah. where the Wi-Fi is hooked up and you have to like go and stand in line and wait for this card that you pay for that like gets you online and mm -hmm. the Wi-Fi isn't very good. So we just eventually like, we're like, whatever, we'll just embrace like the lack of Wi-Fi in our lives. God, I'm <laughs> me the chills that sort of travel because that is like going back in the old days, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I I'd arguably say not quite like that. When I traveled in 2014, no, 2013, me and my friend done six months in Southeast Asia. It wasn't quite like that, but it was a, a little bit where we didn't have smartphones, right? So um, we would put a Facebook message, well, yeah. status on one one per week where we were if a hostel had a laptop, uh, laptop or a computer, right? Yeah. That sort of thing. And anyone that we met, like the guys that I stayed in North Bay with in Toronto, they are the people that we met in the first week of traveling. Like you just yeah. add them on Facebook and then hope for the best. You might bump into them, you might not. Yeah. 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 I do. Like when I backpacked Europe, when I was like 18, 19, I did not have a phone with me. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I think smartphones existed, but I just didn't have one yet. I had a flip phone and I was like, what yeah. am I going to do with this in Europe? So I left it at home. And I remember like going to cafes and like logging on and sending an email to yeah. my parents and like <laughs> looking up hostels and writing down the address. And uh, I was telling my podcast producer Katie I used to literally hand draw maps as to how to like get to my next hostel so I would like draw the train station yeah. and the streets and like write directions for myself <laughs> <laughs> unbelievable that people might be listening to this going what what world is this I but this know. is only 10, 10 years ago <laughs> more than 10 years ago yeah. yeah unreal unreal yeah okay and is there another country that you travel to that you'd like maybe to mention Oh my gosh. Well, I've been to a lot. Um, I guess like the ones that have stood out to me the most, like these are the countries I know I'm going to go back to. Mm. Um, Japan, for sure. I oh, really yeah. loved Japan. Yeah. Um, India, my partner and I are planning to go back there for a couple months mm -hmm. in not the near future, but eventually. Um, where else? Oh, Jordan. We really, really oh, yeah. loved Jordan. We road tripped around Jordan and it was just, such an experience oh, can i press you on that then jordan because yeah, this year i don't know if you've seen on on your reading and research jordan seems to be on 
everyone's lips of places to go, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. It, it's almost becoming like, it's like a Thailand this year, like, oh, where are you going, Jordan? Oh, okay. Who isn't going yeah. to Jordan? Yeah. Well, we are planning to go Jordan, <laughs> not this year, but yeah. maybe next year. So yeah. the classic is just getting there, get the Jordan pass, going to the science ride, but you road tripped it. So I'm keen to hear what was that like? Because I hear that public transport's not that great. So mm-hmm. is it maybe the way to do it in terms of being a bit more mobile around the country? Yeah, we, to be honest, I don't really remember why we decided to road trip. I think it was the transport thing. We just felt it would be too annoying to have to like plan around buses because the buses don't run often. Yeah. Um. So we felt we would have more freedom if we rented a car. And I'm pretty sure we just looked and the cost of renting a car like wasn't astronomical. Um, and my partner has driven like all over the world. He's pretty confident with driving abroad. Um, Cause I would say like, you do need to be confident to drive in Jordan, okay. um, especially in the cities. But once you're outside the city, it's like yeah. pretty easy driving. The roads are all great. Like, yeah, don't speed. You'll get a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, we loved driving because we could just stop whenever we wanted. We stopped in random towns and villages. And yeah, we just felt we had a lot of freedom by going in a car. Oh, yeah, because I fear that if I get that Jordan Pass, which everyone does do, and it's going to, you know, you go to Petra, of course, you go there and yeah. Wadi Rum and all these places, right? They're the same that everyone else goes to. But I would be a little bit tempted just to get a car, maybe go to, not alone, but like places that maybe people have not been to that much. Mm-hmm. That'd be a temptation. Yeah. Maybe get a yeah, like the nice thing was we would be driving all day and we would stop in a random town and just like pop into a restaurant and have lunch. Yeah. And you can't do that when you take the bus. So, yeah. yeah. We really enjoyed that. And actually, I think one thing I'll say, a lot of people skip Amman or don't spend a lot of time in Amman. Mm. We loved Amman. I would spend three or four days there if you can. Okay. Yeah. We yeah. loved it yeah. so much that we spent two days left. And then at the end of our trip, we decided to go back to Amman because we wanted to spend two more days oh, there. Wow. Yeah, yeah. We just loved wandering around that city and the food was just so incredible. So if you have time, definitely don't skip Amman. No, I definitely won't. I don't tend to skip the the place you land in, right? Yeah. Because Amman is going to be so big. There's going to be little pockets of areas that you want to go and check out, right? Surely. Yeah. Um, exactly. If you can deal with the craziness, I think it's quite crazy there by the looks of it. But I would be well in my element there to go and check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So Jordan, get a car out. That's uh, what I've learned in this podcast so far. <laughs> and did you travel anywhere else in the Middle East or just, uh, just Jordan? So we've actually also been to Dubai and yeah. other parts of UAE um you know what it wasn't my favorite to be honest we went to Dubai because we were in India and we needed to do a visa run yeah um because uh we had a 30-day visa and we we had just gotten our second 30-day but to, for it to be activated we had to leave and come back so we had a friend who was living in Dubai and was saying oh you can come stay with me easy mm-hmm. flight so we did it but like probably uh, I'll never tell someone not to go somewhere. Yeah, like if you I, want I, I to go somewhere, say. go. Yeah. But like Dubai is not a place I'll recommend. It just it wasn't like our our vibe. Okay. Um, it's just like a lot of like shopping. <laughs> yeah. And actually, place. we rented a car in Dubai because we got tired of the city, and we said, okay, like let's get a car and leave the city. And that was the best part. Like we really loved driving around UAE, like just through the desert and. We drove to some like coastal cities and that was really fun. So oh, that's a good tip. if you do go to Dubai, don't be afraid to get a car and drive because ah. it's worth it. 
Do you know what? I've been doing research in the Middle East because we're sort of planning maybe to go there, and it just seems like road tripping is the only way. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. We've looked into Oman is definitely we're going to road trip in Oman because you can free camp anywhere. Yeah. So I think we're going to do that. But it's a place like Saudi Arabia, which is going to be interesting to go to, but it's such a big country that you can't just do tra- public transport. You either yeah. stay in a city or you don't go because unless you've got a car, yeah. Like public transport, I don't, unless you fly, maybe you might be all right. But yeah, it just seems that these countries are so big that you just need a car to go and explore certain areas. Yeah, I think what it is is like um, a lot of the Middle East, because it's like desert, is yeah. very, there's just not like, it's not all inhabited. It's kind of like Canada. Like Canada, it's kind of hard to travel around by bus because it's so oh, yeah. expansive that like mm. the bus networks aren't good. Whereas like countries like India and countries in Southeast Asia, because there's people living like everywhere, there's really good connectivity when it comes to like public mm. networks for travel. But like, that's the thing we noticed about UAE is like you get in a car and you're driving for like four hours and there's just nothing. It's just yeah. desert. Yeah. So yeah. makes sense that there's not buses running because, yeah. Why would you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. That's good to know. And one last thing about a country, you mentioned India. So I went for three months in 2016. Yeah. Uh, I got a 90-day visa, um, which was quite expensive. I think it's one of the, I think it's the most expensive tourist visa for UK nationals. I think it's about 100 10 20 pounds so it's, oh, uh, it's expensive yeah, yeah yeah super expensive but amazing because india is a great country it's big it's cheap so where did you go on your trip so we started in kolkata because we were flying in from thailand um so we were in kolkata and then we went to varanasi and then yeah. from there we basically just traveled west across the country so like obviously stopped at the taj mahal yeah um and then into Ooh, Rajasthan. Yeah. We spent like almost a month in Rajasthan because there's a lot to see. Same. Yeah, we did that. Yeah. 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 We loved Rajasthan. Um, so that was a month. And then that's when we needed to do our visa run. So we left and then came back and flew into Mumbai and then traveled south um, down towards Kerala. Down towards oh, Kerala. Kerala. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think so it was we south. stopped at like yeah. Hampi and then traveled oh. south here. And then we traveled east across like southern India. I can't remember all the names of the cities. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. That's sort of the like funny route that we took. And how long was <laughs> how that trip? You? That was like two and a half months total. Okay. Yeah. So three months for me was Rajasthan and the same as you across. Um, yeah. But we did dip up to Rishikesh and dip up to Darjeeling. So we've done like that and that. <laughs> I was okay. in Nepal, really. So we, that was the three months, just under three months. I had to go home early. But Amazing. Rajasthan. I'll message you when we go because we want to go more north on our next trip because we oh, yeah. didn't do that last time. So especially the Darjeeling area. We really oh, want to go up so there. so good. Yeah. I was talking to someone yesterday, a couple who come on the podcast as a guest, and we're talking about places that you go to, like one little calf that you – it's so good that you go again, right? I don't normally go to the same eatery if it's breakfast or dinner twice, but mm-hmm. this one in Darjeeling, we went four days in a row <laughs> because <laughs> – this guy is in Darjeeling. It's it's up in the mountains, right? And it, the time we went, it was so cold. But this guy had like basically it's his house, and he sort of turned into like his homely kitchen restaurant. Yeah. But he lived in the UK for a bit, and he went back to India to Darjeeling, and he creates his hash brown. And what he did is he shed the potato properly, right? Chop it all up, yeah. shed it, put it together, and fry it. And you couldn't get this anywhere that we saw in India. Like it's all like Dao and all Indian food for breakfast, right? Or toast, maybe maximum you're gonna get. But this guy had like hash brown, tomatoes, mushroom, eggs, wow. bread. 
we're like we're coming every day i don't remember the place i don't remember what he's called oh my gosh i'm i'm so devastated so i'm gonna have to go back yeah and try and find it and maybe if you go hopefully you can i'll look a mission to try and find find him yeah was it coffee that was always my struggle in india like yes find good coffee (laughs) yeah coffee for us unfortunately this might cringe a few people and i've just set up a coffee podcast uh for september 1st we actually went to chains in india like cafe coffee day because they do do normal coffee like, yeah, like but India was full of like chai and masala chai and all this sort of stuff which is great yeah. but getting yeah. good coffee was an issue I know because I love chai but every once in a while I was just like I would just love like a western cup of coffee <laughs> I yeah. just missed it <laughs> yeah it's an issue but yeah northern India was great we volunteered in Jai Samir for two weeks uh, I think we're going to talk about volunteerism later mm-hmm. on um yeah. keen to hear your thoughts on that but we did do that in Jai Samir which is quite cool to live amongst the locals for a couple of weeks and yeah, it was, it was a great time. Varanasi was crazy. Mm-hmm. And Rishikesh was almost like Darjeeling, but de- definitely different. Mm. Yeah, either side of the Himalayas, but yeah, different type of vibe there. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So that was a trip. Cool. Let's go into sustainable travel. What All does right. that even mean? What's the definition of sustainable travel? Before you answer that, here's one guy that I heard once say in a, I went to a webinar this year about Pakistan. Mm-hmm traveling in Pakistan. Pakistan, by the way, is opening up. I think it's going to become more popular maybe next year. Security is better now. It's starting to be a place to go because it's cheap. Anyway, on this whole webinar, they're talking about sustainable travel. And I can't remember this guy's name, actually. I've got on Instagram. He's a photographer, UK photographer. They're talking about sustainable travel and how they're trying to make it sustainable in Pakistan. And he went on the webinar. He, you know, I muted himself. Yeah, let's talk about sustainable travel is almost pointless. Mm. And people are like, oh, and he's like, if you don't want the environment changed or ruined by tourism, then don't go. He said, mm. sustainable travel, roughly long lines, I'm not quoting here. If we go to Pakistan, all of us here because of this webinar, that's not going to help the environment. And it might become unsustainable because we're now telling people to go to Pakistan. So he said, we need to be really careful about how we describe sustainable travel. Because he said, in my eyes, as a nature photographer, it's already ruined because mm. of tourism. So that's what he said. What's your take on sustainable travel? I mean, that's such an interesting take. That's so dark. Yeah, it is dark. Yeah, yeah. He was. T- I yeah, think I'm more yeah. of an optimist in the sense that, see, okay, the issue I have with that approach or like that way of thinking is that it kind of removes any responsibility from yourself. Mm. And it's kind of like this attitude of throwing in the towel and saying, well, like you can't travel sustainably. So like, what's the point in even trying? I do agree that like tourism is not good for mm. sustainability or for our environment. Um, but the reality is people will always travel. There's no way the yeah. world is going to stop yeah. this. We're a globalized planet now. People are always going to travel. So I do think like it makes more sense to make it an active discussion. Um, and yeah, to put pressure on like the powers at B to move towards more sustainable frameworks for tourism and there is like positive stuff happening in the tourism industry like we are making progress Mm -hmm. very slowly but it is happening and so i think it's important to like just like acknowledge that things are changing and we can do better um but like that's not going to happen if we just like throw in the towel and say like oh there's no way to do it or that like we just shouldn't travel at all 
And I think the other thing is like, there's so many benefits of travel, like quitting travel altogether. I mean, you lose out on a lot of like amazing benefits of travel if you take that approach. But yeah, I guess like, so the World Tourism Organization defines sustainable tourism as tourism that takes full account of its current and future economic, social, uh, and environmental impacts. Um, And it also addresses like the needs of visitors, the industry, um, the environment and host communities. That's like a very formal definition, but Mm -hmm. I guess in layman's terms and like how I think of it is sustainable travel is just an approach that aims to minimize the negative impacts of a trip while hopefully contributing something positive. So for example, like choosing to take a train instead of a short haul flight is a great sustainable travel choice because it means your trip is going to have less of a carbon footprint mm-hmm. on the environment. Um, I will like mention though that this is very much centering individual travelers. When it comes to sustainable tourism, we really do need buy-in from like corporate entities and DMOs, tourism boards, governments. That's really where we'll see like meaningful change. But when individual travelers start expressing that this is important and something that is guiding their purchase decisions, that's what shapes change Mm -hmm. higher up, like in the corporations. So yeah, I don't think individual travelers should feel like guilt, but I do think shifting like your purchase decisions when it comes to travel can have impact in the long term. So it's worth thinking about. Okay, it's very interesting. Do you think also, there's a difference here with the type of travellers. So let's say my question here is going to be us backpacking in Cuba. It's one in, one out flight, I imagine, right? In, out, two flights. Mm-hmm. But in that same period of time, someone who's business travelling for a business or corporation or their job, in that month that you've been in Cuba, so you've done two flights, right? They could have flown 20 times, I don't know, yeah. four or five times a week. Like, Is that the problem where... It's not really like, I'm not shifting blame here. I'm just trying to think if you're a backpacker and you're flying into Southeast Asia once, three months out again, two flights, there's no way of getting there really. Yeah. That's nowhere near as a, much of a problem as someone who's a business traveler who's going into cross Atlantic three yeah. or four times a month. Is that more of a problem, do you think, for business travel rather than Oh, yeah. Allegedly? I think when it comes to airlines, like business travel is a big piece of it. Like that is a problem. A lot of it is fully unnecessary travel. And you have people like, I mean, it happens in Canada, like people that fly from Toronto to Ottawa and back in one day just for a business meeting. Like we have Zoom, we can yeah. connect digitally um, or take the train. <laughs> um, and I, this has been in the news a lot recently, like private jets are a huge issue. Oh. These private jets, like their carbon output is massive to transport just a few people. And these jets are being overused, like for trips that they just are Mm. not necessary for. And then a third piece um, that I, I, I've been part of the problem myself. Like when I was backpacking in Europe, I would take like Ryanair and EasyJet flights all the time. I lived in the Netherlands for a few months. Every weekend it was like, ooh, like what cheap Ryanair flight can I snag like for the weekend? Yeah. And I think like this has made, flying has just become so accessible that's really easy to overdo it with the flying. And um, like, for example, France recently, I think last year, brought in a new policy that any flights that the travel time is two and a half hours or less by train or bus, those flights are now illegal. So you can't fly oh. short distances anymore. Oh, wow. Um, they fully made it illegal. And that's because it's just become too easy 
to be booking these like very, very short flights that have a massive carbon output. Yeah. So I think a lot of it is just like shifting the way we view flight as like necessary. Mm. Like I, I personally, like I, I'm definitely part of the problem. I used to fly like short distances all the time, oh, yeah. just like because it was convenient. Mm. But I've really been trying to like shift towards only flying when it's absolutely necessary. And when I do fly, trying to go somewhere for like a good chunk of time. And instead of like hopping, like sometimes I would do trips where I would like go to two or three different countries in one trip. Now I try to like focus just on the one country versus going to multiple places and like doing multiple flights within a trip itself. Got it. I, I do wonder if COVID though has taught us that you don't need to be in the office anymore, especially for a meeting. Like why can't you do it digitally? Mm-hmm. So in theory, because we're all going to remote work right now, even I'm still not back. I mean, back in one day a week, right? So yeah. does that mean that do you have to fly across just to do a, I don't know, sales pitch or a meeting? Do you have to do that? Like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I do think it's gotten better because I, I can say like my company, from what I've seen, they've cut a lot of business travel because of COVID for that reason, like because it benefits the company too. It's like, why spend the money to be flying yeah. people all over the place when you don't need to? Yeah. Um, so I know that like in my company, a lot of business travel was cut. I don't know like if it'll come back eventually, but it seems like a lot of companies have scaled back the amount of investment they put into business travel. So that's good. Yeah, that's kind of the change we need, right? Mm-hmm. Across the board in terms of companies trying to not be dicks about it and just say, yeah, actually it is the way to go. And let's, yeah. let's try to do something about it. But you're right about the buy-in it has to come in, unfortunately, from the, the top people. And I think we said maybe before recording that in a world where a lot of the company's policies and mantra is to make as much money as possible, it's not great for something like anything sustainable, whether it's traveled or the earth or whatever it is, it's going to be a problem, right? Because they're always going to put their focus on money first, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is where I think it's like so important to emphasize like the con- the power that we have as consumers. Um, so an example I love is that Google Flights in the last like two-ish years started showing which flights have more carbon emissions than others. So if you go and you punch in a flight route, mm. the options that you see will tell you which flights have more carbon output and which have less. Yeah. Google has given us a tool now to choose flights that have less of an impact. And I think like this is really important because if the data shows that people are actively choosing flights that have less emissions, that has a trickle down effect. Airlines will take that data and say, oh, this is something that our consumers want. They're making choices based off of this metric. And so the more we make those choices, the more it communicates to like an airline, for example, that this is important and it's something that consumers think about and factor into their buying process. And then, yeah, that like creates impetus to reduce carbon output. I mean, I don't know if this will work. This is just a theory I have. And yeah. And I think it it applies to like other things as well. Like if people start actively booking hotels that like are very transparent about like how eco they are. Mm. Other hotels will say, oh, people are booking this hotel because they like have a policy about like what they're doing in terms of sustainability. Maybe we should be doing this as well. So when you make it part of your like buying decision and that's done en masse, that communicates to like companies and vendors that this is important to consumers. 
Yeah, you're right. Because even on Skyscanner, when you look at flights, right, it tells you the greener option. Yeah. This is the green one. Yeah. yeah. And do you know what? I know what it means, as in, like, it's greener. But I don't know how or why that's greener. I have no yeah, idea. What, why is that greener? That's my one question. Because <laughs> I love that it shows it. But I'm also yeah. like, but how do you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> right. is it just telling me that to get that flight? To, I don't know. Maybe it's a bit Some skeptical. of it, I think, has to do with whether there's a connection. Because that's another thing. If you can, if you are able to afford to book direct flights, like book direct, because right. that's you're just you're flying less. And when yeah. a plane takes off and lands, that's when the most carbon is um, released. Mm. So if you take a direct flight versus a flight that involves like two takeoffs and two landings, um, that will help reduce your output. So I think it might have to do with that. I'd have to go and like look at it to mm. figure that out. But yeah, I'm curious. <laughs> Was that a moment in time where you thought I need to discuss this on a podcast or did you set up a podcast because of this? Like, was there a, a trip or was there something that you're reading about? Like what triggered you to maybe start this conversation? I've told people before, I think like I first started to think about this when I lived in Venice. I lived in Venice, Italy for a couple months working in a hostel mm. and I worked for Venetians who like had grown up on the island yeah, being in that community, I learned a lot that I had never known as a tourist because I ended up there because originally I traveled through Venice and really, really loved it and made friends with this woman that worked in this hostel and she was from Venice and she later like emailed me and said, do you want to come back and work? And so that's how I ended up back there. Um, but my first trip, I was just a tourist. So I saw it through that lens. But living there and living with Venetians, I just was exposed to a different part of life there. Um, and it was one that was clearly very impacted by over-tourism. Mm -hmm. um, I could sense frustration amongst people that lived in Venice about crowds and about like tourist behavior. Yeah, and there was like a whole gamut of issues that like I learned about there. But that I think is when I first started thinking, oh wow, like tourism has such an impact, yeah. So when I started the podcast, I knew I wanted to cover topics like related to like kind of issues with travel that I felt weren't discussed enough. Yeah. But I would say it was after the first season that my producer Katie and I realized that framing the show specifically around like responsible and sustainable tourism made the most sense. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess that was mainly because it's a conflict that I've felt as a traveler, especially in recent years. I'm passionate about travel and I know that it can have a detrimental impact. So it's like that conflict, right? Yeah. Um, I love travel, I'm passionate about it, I want to do it, but I don't wanna do harm. Um, and so that's sort of like the central issue that we talk about on the show. Okay, there's two places in Europe where I think over-tourism has really got to the locals that I've seen from a mm -hmm. higher level. One is Venice, where mm -hmm. you can't imagine, can you like, imagine you're just, you've grown up in Venice and like all you see all day is tourists and the way they act and mm. it's just like it's tough to even get down the road or around the waterway if you like yeah um crazy and the other place is barcelona i think locals there got really fed up yeah. with over tourism especially like people that live in the city because it yeah. is so busy in barcelona they're the two places that i would think that locals are going to start to try yeah. and do something about it i don't know what they can do but i think the discussion has yeah. already started Dubrovnik as well, like Dubrovnik oh, has okay. caps on how many cruise ships can port in oh, a day. Cruise ships. Oh. Yeah, cruise ships were the big issue in Venice. Like literally, 
I would shop at specific time of, times of day because it was all based on when the cruise ships would arrive. Because the yeah. second the cruise ships arrived, it was like it's impossible to like get around. And so I would shop like at the times that I knew there were no cruise ships in port. And living there, you just you start to figure out like these are the times of day when it's just like jam packed. Yeah. The other interesting thing is like I moved to Venice in I think February. In the winter, it's like a completely different city because there's barely any tourism. Oh right, okay. People good time to go. go. <laughs> yeah, it is a good time to go. Um, yeah, it was a very quiet like. Yeah, I would just say quiet. It was a quiet city, and it was really like kind of beautiful to experience it at that time of year. Okay, and I'm going to ask you, what is your opinion on cruise ships? Let's go with as a mode of transport for travel, but also the impact it's having. Like, I absolutely, I don't care saying this, I despise them, <laughs> and I despise anyone who say they're good. To yeah, you know, to I a degree, like... I don't despise them as a human being, but their thought yeah. of travel because even it's hard to describe if you're not if you're not living in a place with cruise ships. You never gonna understand, but Vancouver cruise ships all the time. Get out of my life! Stop mm. bogging up downtown and stop going in the same little area and seeing things that you think is Vancouver when it's not. Mm-hmm. And they just hover, hover around, and oh yeah, yeah. Not fans, what's your? I would, yeah, I would say I agree. I can never picture myself going on a cruise unless it's like to go to Alaska. I think that's the only exception. Okay, to go to places that I literally cannot go without a boat. Um, but yeah, I think like the biggest issue I find is, yeah, like they, they clog, um, cities when they Mm. go into port. Um, and it's like, I think the bigger problem is it's drop in tourism. When you're on a cruise ship, your money is going towards that company. You're not spending a lot of money in the communities that you're Mm. visiting. You hop Mm. off the cruise ship, you walk around for a bit, you might buy food, but probably not because you're fed on the ship for free. Yeah. You might buy like a couple trinkets. You maybe will hire like a local guide to go on a tour if you have time in the few hours that you have in port. Um, but yeah, it's really like the economy of being on a cruise ship is all based on the ship. It's not based in the communities that you're visiting. And I think that's the biggest issue I find with cruise ship travel. Like you're not really encouraged to um, invest in the communities you're visiting, which is a big part of what makes tourism good. Um, a lot of tourism is like quite crucial to economies. Mm. And when you're on a cruise ship, it's really hard to like contribute to that benefit. Mm, interesting. I think my example of that was when I was in Antigua for 10 days. I've said this before in podcasts where I got a car out and I just drove around the island for Mm-hmm. Yeah, it must have been eight or nine days, actually. And I spoke to a local in the capital, it's St. John's, I think. And he said, oh, so why are you here? Like, why aren't you, like, in the cruise ship area? And I was like, I'm not part of the cruise ship. He's like, what do you mean? I said, oh, <laughs> I, stay, I stay on the other side of the island. Yeah. Goes, what, what, you're here driving around the island? I said, yeah. He goes, no one does that. I'm like, yeah, they, they literally <laughs> stay in the duty-free bit. They dip yeah. in slightly into the capital, and then they're back on the cruise ship again. I was like, yeah, I don't get what, what they're doing. They're just on a boat for, like, <laughs> five or six days, just not seen anywhere. Yeah, it's a bit strange. Yeah. You can believe it. Yeah, so I was the only. It felt like it, it was it was low season, shoulder season. So a bit of rain was there. So that, in that rainy season, but I felt like I was the only guy tourist either I saw was driving around the island checking out because all the beaches were deserted because it was the key time to visit, mm. and all the cruise ships stayed in the set Johns and that was it. Mm-hmm. So it felt like I was on my own, which is cool. But yeah, they're shocked to see me driving around in the car. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely a culture around cruising that I don't think 
like lands with me it's it's just a different like type of travel yeah I kind of like part of me understands the appeal like everything is taken care of you literally have no worries it's kind of it's kind of like going to a resort um and from what I've heard like people love cruises because you're on a ship and you make friends with like it's the same as a resort you make friends with people on the ship there's events there's parties like there's a lot to do it's entertaining so I can understand like it's probably a very relaxing vacation um but yeah I don't know that it's the most responsible way to travel. And did you have a different view of sustainable travel before and after COVID? Has COVID made it better? I don't know. Yeah, I think it's too soon to tell. There was a lot of optimism, especially in the last two years, um, that travel would be much better post-COVID. Yeah. And I mean, we're not post-COVID, but like that in the wake of COVID starting Mm. that... um, we would see change in the industry. I do think we've seen some. And I actually, there's an article, I haven't read it yet, but my friend just emailed it to me. um, And he noted, he said, oh, like some destinations actually have been able to um, combat over tourism a little bit. And actually my partner and I went to Iceland in June. Yeah. And while we were there, we learned a lot about like what Iceland has been doing, like during this two year break, essentially, of mm-hmm. tourism, because Iceland was really struggling in like 2017, 18 and 19 yeah. with like too many tourists. Yeah. It was having a really negative impact on their ecosystem. During the pandemic, a lot of countries scaled back their investment in tourism. Iceland put more budget towards tourism than they ever had while there was no tourism. And the reason they did that is because they saw this break in tourists coming as an opportunity to like really work on infrastructure. And we could see that when we were traveling around. Yeah, they've built up like a lot of infrastructure to protect um, the ecosystem, but they've also like put a lot of marketing towards encouraging travelers to travel differently in Iceland, Mm -hmm. rather than just like going into Reykjavik and doing the classic um, tour of Thingavellir. Yeah. They're now encouraging tourists to like really spread out and like go out to the far reaching places on the islands that like a lot of people don't ever go to. True. Yeah. To be honest, like I think like pre-COVID, one thing I've realized is that I definitely took travel for granted. Yes. It's so silly to say, but like obviously yeah. I have many privileges that have made travel very accessible to me throughout my life. And so border closures and travel restrictions were so jarring. Like because of restrictions in Canada, like I didn't travel for two years almost, Mm. you know, like I had concerns about my health and the health of others and wanted to like follow the restrictions. So I just didn't travel for two years. And that like is wild to me now because normally I travel like many times a year. So I definitely took it for granted. And I think I don't so much anymore. (laughs) Yeah, that casual travel, which probably doesn't help with sustainable travel, but before COVID, you could literally go anywhere at any time, right? You could book a flight, done, you're gone. And then when COVID came along, it's like, oh, you have to really plan a trip now where you can't just willy-nilly jump mm-hmm. on a plane to Toronto or into the US, yeah. for example, which is quite a popular thing to do here. Yeah. Yeah, just wasn't available. That was a huge shift and maybe a much needed shift though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it's been a tough couple of years, isn't it? Especially if you if you love travel. Some people hate travel, so it doesn't mean anything to them. Yeah. But- <laughs> Imagine people in Barcelona and in Venice were like, oh, and Dubrovnik. Yeah, definitely. definitely. They, actually, they actually viewed and lived in their own city for the first time. Yeah. Like a normal person in that city should live it. Like, you know, yeah. It's not dominated by tourism. It's yeah. like 
they're going about their daily routine or if they can if they can go out in COVID times and yeah. they see locals and not tourists. It must be yeah. weird. Yeah. <laughs> Strange. Okay. I've got a few questions here about types of tourism as well. You mentioned it on your website, I think, these types of tourism. So dark tourism. What does that mm -hmm. mean? Um, it's basically just traveling to places that have a history of human suffering or tragedy right. or death. Um, so, for example, Ground Zero in New York City. Oh, yeah, um, I went there. Auschwitz. Yeah. I'll tell, tell, tell you one. Yeah, very quickly before you carry on. Yeah. One thing that I didn't like. So I went on my own. I was solo traveling at the time. Went mm -hmm. to Ground Zero. I went to one of the chats. You can go. You can go book a tour, and then go to like this like little seminar room where a few of the survivors do a chat. Mm -hmm. Real somber and like you can't not be emotional and it's like oh bloody hell like, i need to go for coffee after this and just like chill out for a bit yeah but what i didn't like at the time was that when you went to grand zero and you got those bits in the ground would have the names of each person who died right where the mm -hmm. twin towers were you got people taking selfies i'm like why are you mm. taking selfies why are you smiling in photos like what, what does that mean like why are you doing that it really grinded my gears i had to get out of there pretty quickly like and just get to this like chat and i, I couldn't cope with it i just understand what was going yeah, on? Yeah, we've actually talked about this on the podcast. I oh, think it's okay. episode two. It's one of our earliest episodes. And we talked about, um, there was a famous photo that was like circulating on Twitter of a young woman who took a selfie at Auschwitz in Poland. Mm. Um, and obviously people were not happy about this. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot to unpack around that. Because like, I personally don't know that I could take a selfie. But I also think like, some people view it I guess there's a line of thinking that like taking a selfie of yourself smiling is sort of like reclaiming that space in like a positive light. I don't know if I agree with this take, but yeah, that's what some people argue. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, Grand Zero, Auschwitz, um, the Killing Fields in Cambodia, yep, all of these are dark tourism sites. I would say most people like have been to a dark tourism site. They just like yep. haven't thought about it in that sense. Mm. Um, like I didn't hear the term until long after I had been like a dark tourist many times. And I get asked about this a lot because I think the term sounds pretty negative. Um, but personally, I think that dark tourism is a really important type of tourism, just as long as it's approached in the right way, which you've okay. pointed to already. Um, I think like it's really important to consider your intention for visiting that place. Um, be respectful while you're there and try to make the experience an educational one. So like that's what it was that time to, to learn. Yeah. Couldn't um, feel it was educational. I didn't know yeah. anything about it. So I was yeah. pretty grossed out afterwards. Like, oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah. What yeah. didn't help is that when we got back in our tuk-tuk, the guy was like, um, so we've got an offer today to go and maybe shoot some cows. And we're like, nah, mate, we don't want to. Oh, we've talked about this on the podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we don't want to shoot a chicken or a cow. We just want to go back to the hostel and maybe just reflect a little bit. <laughs> I know. Not, 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 not the time to ask. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that also related to, maybe it's, different, maybe it's a different term for this, countries that don't have a great record currently? So what I'm saying, someone asked me the day, like, oh, well, you go to Saudi Arabia? I'm like, yeah. You go, well, the government's awful. I'm like, well, yeah, the government is, but the local people aren't. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's an argument there, right, to say that technically, if I'm saying that, nothing's off the cards. But yeah. is there a term for maybe countries that don't have a great record where people still go to them? Is that part of dark tourism or was that something? I wouldn't frame that as dark tourism. I don't know if there's a term for it. Like some people consider it like extreme travel, extreme just like travel. traveling to countries that are like generally don't have like a great reputation for tourism. Mm -hmm. 
like North Korea, for example, is like a really good example. Like a lot of people just like definitely would not travel there. I don't know that there's like a specific term for it, but we we've interviewed a guy on the podcast actually who does like a lot of that kind of travel. Like he gets a thrill out of going to places that like are really like inaccessible. Okay. It was yeah. a really interesting episode. And I like challenged him a lot because this is the thing. I think it's up to every individual to mm. decide like what their ethical line is when it comes to traveling to place. I think yeah. the bottom line is that no country has like a squeaky clean track Great. record. There's True. nowhere you can travel where there's not something unethical that you can like leverage as a reason not to travel mm. there. I think like for me, it's a lot to do with like governments. Like I would not go to North Korea because I don't want to support that government. Yeah. Um, and it's impossible to travel there without doing that. But yeah, there's other places I've traveled to. Like one person said to me once, she was like, I can't believe you traveled to India. Like it's kind of like poverty porn to travel there. I think some people view that as like oh. not a good place to travel. But I thought like, listen, I was investing a lot like in the local community as I traveled there. And yeah, like other people say, oh, like if you're a woman, you might not want to travel to certain places because like the track record for women's rights in a country might not yeah. be great. And I don't think that like vetoing traveling there does anything. Mm. Um, True. So yeah, I don't know. That's kind of my take. I don't know that there's a term for it, but I do think it's like really up to individual people to decide like where their personal line is in terms of um, destinations that they choose. Yeah. With Frank a few weeks ago, it's interesting because he, he hitchhiked this year in Afghanistan, right? Which I knew was going to be a bit controversial, maybe with some listeners that I have because they don't support, obviously, the Taliban. Why would you? Mm -hmm. uh, he said the fact is if you're going to travel to Afghanistan now, you're going to have to communicate with the Taliban. So he goes, that's the decision you've got to make. Um, yeah. What he did say is, so yeah, he obviously had no problems with the Taliban in terms of personal experience. They didn't do anything to him. They didn't, they just checked his documents a lot. They're a bit surprised to see him. But he said, mm -hmm. away from that, the locals, like just the general people on the street were so kind and so welcoming. Yeah. So he said he felt like I had a real sense of community there, yeah. even though they probably deep down want the Taliban to go away. Oh, yeah, for, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know what I, I do it. Yeah. For, for I women travel, I don't know. I don't even know. Well, and that's the thing, too. And right. I can rant about this all day long. But like white men just like can literally go anywhere. Yeah, I know. Safely. Yeah. I, think like, to that, I yeah. love that he was <laughs> able to do that. But like as a woman, there's no way I could ever hitchhike yeah. around Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah, no. There's no way. Like it yeah. just is not safe. And a lot of men, I think, like just don't recognize like how much yeah. of a privilege that is. Yeah, we are going to come to privilege in a bit, actually. Yeah. About that. <laughs> but quickly before we get to that, you've got voluntourism. Yeah, this one's always controversial. Yeah. <laughs> um, Keen to hear okay. what you say about this. I totally understand the appeal. Um, it seems like a great opportunity <laughs> to do good while you're exploring the world. Like, who doesn't want to do that? Um, the thing is, voluntourism, especially missionary work and other forms of aid, um, often carry colonial and problematic undertones. Mm -hmm. And it can be very difficult to figure out whether or not your presence and your volunteer work is actually having a positive impact. Okay. Um, and part of this is because volunteerism is now an industry. Um, yes. It's very easy now to just go to a website and book and pay for one or two week volunteer experiences where you just drop into a community briefly. These experiences, like I know, they can be very transformational for the volunteer. But in many cases, like it's really unlikely that that volunteer returned that positive impact to the community that they visited. 
And there's lots of accounts of this, like No White Saviors in Uganda has like covered this quite a lot um, from the perspective of people living in those communities about how like the impact of volunteerism is mainly detrimental. There's not really anything positive coming from that rather than like other than the visitors having a transformational experience. Right. I don't think all volunteerism is bad. You just need to be very discerning about like what impact you're actually having. Um, like for example, a volunteer experience while traveling like is great if you do it like as a work exchange, like Workaway yeah. is a site that you can work, like, work yeah. exchanges through. And that's just like you're, you're communicating with one host and you're usually exchanging like farm work for a stay on their farm. Yeah. Um, experiences like that, I wouldn't say are bad. It's the ones that like really carry like colonial undertones that are an issue. Right. So yeah, I was going to ask. So if you were to go and do a work away in a coffee farm, just like help pick the coffee beans, for example, or whatever it is they do, mm -hmm. um, that's okay because you're actually doing something physical that returns a, a bit of work, which is helpful to the owner, right? Because they mm -hmm. need that, they need it done. So that's kind of like a tangible thing. But it's yeah. the other, it's the other way where it's not good. Where yeah. it's the way, it's the white savior complex a little bit as well, isn't it? Where yes. you feel like you're going to Africa to yeah. go and help teach English to children for two weeks, like yeah. drop in the ocean, really not there for much in terms of time. Like, yeah. That is not good. Yeah. Someone asked me a day, whatever month about Africa and, and they said, oh, you're going to go do some volunteering now. I was like, no, I'm just going to go travel around. Cause mm -hmm. I thought surely traveling around investing in local communities is better than pretending to help by doing yeah. volunteer work. I interviewed a woman for our podcast. I can't remember her name. I'll have to link you this episode as well, but she is an aid worker. And this quote, like, I'll never forget it. She was like, don't go and volunteer just to play pretend at being an aid worker. Like you are not, unless you have skills that that community doesn't have within their community already that you can contribute. It's very unlikely that you're like really doing anything for them positive. Um, right. Okay. So like sometimes I just think like, let's just be tourists because that's what we are. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, if you are going to do, this is what I made me think, if you are going to do something like that, like your aid worker interviewee, surely there must be a period of time where it does have an impact. And so maybe like if you stay for six months to a year with that yeah. one skill that they don't have, that has a better impact than dipping in for two weeks, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the work away, I've done work away before, so I'm part of that yeah. community, if you like. Yeah. But, I've yeah, never it's... done it, but I've always wanted to. And I think like next time I do long-term travel, like I'm definitely going to. Workaways are cool because it's also an opportunity to like really get to know a community mm. because you're like living with them. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Foreign tourism. Okay. And I've got one last bullet point here before privilege is authentic travel. Yeah. Okay. I have a whole article about this on my blog. Oh, maybe um, you can link that to me as well. Yeah, I definitely can. I'll send you, I'll send you a whole email. Yes, you. please. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've talked about this on my blog and also on the podcast because um, I think like every traveler wants to feel like they've experienced like an authentic local yeah. experience when mm. they're in a new country or city. Um, but I, I guess I just like think a lot about how authentic those experiences really can be because in reality, we are just visitors. And we're yeah. usually only there for a few days or a few weeks. Mm. So I think like authenticity is very much based on perceptions about a culture or a country or a way of life. Um, and since culture is so fluid, like it's constantly evolving, it's really difficult to pinpoint like any one part as being authentic. Mm -hmm. um, I do think it's possible 
to experience aspects of authentic local life and tradition in the places that we visit. Um, so like, for example, to do that, I would recommend like doing some normal life things when you're visiting a place. I love going to see a movie in, a, in other countries. Like I do it in every country. Yeah. I've seen movies in India and Cuba. Like I always go see a movie because it's just like a normal life thing that gives you a glimpse into like what local life is like in the place that you're visiting. Um, pop into grocery stores, like wander around markets um, and chat with local people if you can. I think like that can give you like a glimpse of authenticity, but I think like it's really, really hard to like argue what is authentic about a place. I, I've even given the example of Canada because like if you visit Toronto, like, you'll have a glimpse into what life is like in Toronto, but that is not Canada. Like yeah. life differs so much across this country. So I think, yeah, it's just worth thinking about that as you travel. And I guess like my qualm is just with people like writing articles and like billing tours as like authentic because it's like ha, I'm on a one week trip. Like, I'm sorry, but like you're not going to have a fully authentic experience. <laughs> yeah, I see you going with that. Yeah. yeah Vancouver is a great example of that, actually. Mm-hmm. Some people who come to visit or, or watch TikToks or blogs about how amazing Vancouver is to visit. Yeah. And it must be played, like awesome to like get the authentic and like no it's not authentic because you don't see the side that's blood expensive here mm-hmm. that no one has any friends here because it's a very insta community where people don't like to make friends mm-hmm. <laughs> and also there's a huge open crisis downtown east side yeah. which Tent you might not see too. because you avoid it and tour companies won't go there where people yeah. live in tents on roads and roads yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I've actually got annoyed along those lines. People say it's amazing here, like tangible. Yeah, mountains in the background, amazing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there is a side to it that people don't want to hear or don't know about. So yeah, you're, you're totally right. And I said to my partner about if we do long term travel next, but I want to go to you know, the Americas, for example. But this authentic travel, I do want to experience it. But I said let's just rock up to any city that we like mm-hmm. in South America. Let's just stay there for a month. And just do routine, go to the local area, coffee shop, grocery store. Let's live like a local and maybe try and get to know some people. That's what I would say. Yeah. Proper authentic experience. You could obviously obviously say longer, but yeah. Yeah. yeah I agree. Is there ways that we can just be a bit more sustainable in terms of travel? Just you mentioned some before, but is there just some quick fire things we can do? Quick fire things. Less flights. I would say, yeah, I would say like reevaluate how you fly. Yeah. I'm not saying cut flying. Just reevaluate how you do it. If it's possible to take a train or a bus instead, go for it. Try to book direct flights if you can. Like I've mentioned a couple of times, like think about your consumer power. Mm-hmm. Um, try to make choices that, you know, promote um, sustainable business in the tourism industry. Um, ooh, another one I love is if you're renting cars, it's now pretty easy to rent electric vehicles. Um, oh, okay. When I was in Portugal, I rented an electric vehicle and it was yeah. amazing, more sustainable and also cheaper because like gas is very expensive right now. Yeah. Charging a car is much cheaper. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. don't shy away from the electric car. Also, like I always bring a sustainability kit with me when I travel. Nice. Um, so I carry like a reusable tote bag with me so that yeah, if I like, shop in a market or something, like yeah. I can refuse the plastic bag. Um, I also like to carry cutlery so that I can refuse like plastic cutlery if I take yes. out street food. 
Um, I also really love my Grail water bottle. It's a water filtration system. I have not bought bottled water in years because of this bottle. Like everywhere mm. I go, I just, if it's like a country where you can't drink the tap water, I just filter it and it works. Yeah. So yeah, I guess those would be my, my quick fire suggestions. Nice. Okay. And let's go to travel privilege, which is not what your podcast is about, but you've learned a lot about it on your podcasts. Mm -hmm. From my point of view, like I said before, I'm a white English speaking male, which I would probably put myself near the top in terms of privilege, where I can pretty much go anywhere. Like you said, I can probably go and hitchhike in Afghanistan, places like this where I probably won't see too much of a danger. So mm -hmm. it's just overlooked constantly by, I guess, like stuff that you read or hear about or listen to from point of view. I'm probably guilty of this when I talk about, oh, yeah, I went to this place and I traveled here where certain people can't do that. So is that what mm -hmm. travel privilege is? It's about the, the idea that some people just can go anywhere at any time. Yeah, I think acknowledging your privileges is important because we can't address these systems, these problematic systems, unless we recognize how they are factored into our own lives. Mm. Um, like, for example, travel in my family and my community when I was growing up was like normalized. It was given everyone traveled. I recently interviewed Kay Kingsman on my podcast. Um, and she noted that when she was growing up, people didn't travel. They didn't have the economic privileges to support it. So for mm. her, travel never felt like it was a possibility for her. Whereas yeah. for me, because everyone around me did travel, it was a possibility. And it was also a possibility because I grew up like middle class, white in Canada, with an education, with everything available to me to make life or travel accessible. I think it's important to think about this stuff because like the more that we acknowledge our own privilege, the more equipped we can become to address systems of oppression and inequity. Cause like travel is one thing that like privilege impacts but it really impacts like every aspect of our lives. In an ideal world, I would love for everyone on this earth to have the opportunity to travel at least once in their life. That won't happen unless we actively challenge these systems. Yeah, and these systems that I'm talking about are like patriarchy, white supremacy, heterosexism, yeah. ableism, all of that. And like privilege is hard because like when you have it, it's hard to recognize that you have it. Um, so yeah, that's why I think it's important to talk about it, especially like as a white woman. Okay, yeah. The, the only thing I have covered to my situation was I was growing up working class, so travel wasn't an option. So this is the mm -hmm. eco, social, eco, economic stuff, right? Where my mum was single parent, right? So the best we're gonna get is in the summer, we might go for a week in UK, but maybe quite close. Might be just mm -hmm. like an hour to hour drive away. Yeah. So I never had the ability to travel. And I, I really saw this in high school when a lot of my friends, I went to a high school that was situated in the middle class area. Mm -hmm. where some of these kids that I knew were going to Spain for two weeks. I was like, wow, I'm like on a plane. Wasn't even yeah. an option. And I, yeah. I can see looking back that where I grew up in that area, me and my sister could have easily like stayed in that sort of class, right, of working class and not go anywhere, even outside the postcode, really. But for mm -hmm. some reason, we need to get out of that and progress ourselves i don't know what that is we kind of talk about it all the time like why do we feel like we had to get an education and get out of it can't really mm -hmm. tell you why so yeah. that came later for me travel but again yeah it's just a little thing i can talk to it's the only thing i can talk to that maybe can help some people but as you say i need mm -hmm. to recognize my privilege as a white person as well i think another big one is passport privilege um oh yeah you and i both have quote unquote strong passports yeah um it's really easy to overlook the fact that you have such ease of access 
to countries with mm. the passports that we have. Um, you know, like I have friends who are from parts of the world where like you have to apply for a visa and it might get denied and it yeah. will cost you tons of money to apply. I had a friend who was Russian um, and lived uh, in the same city as me in the Netherlands. And I remember once we wanted we wanted to go to London and she just said to me, she was like, I know that my visa will get denied um, because of my passport and it's going to cost me a lot of money to apply. And so going to the UK was not an option. Mm. Um, I think like, especially with a Canadian passport, because Canadian passports are like pretty strong. Um, it's really easy to take that for granted, like how easily you can travel. Like most places I travel to, whether or not I'll like get a visa is not even something I have to think about. Yeah. I just know that I'll be able to enter that country. Yeah. Some friends here in my team, they're Indian. They're yeah. like, oh yeah, I have to apply for a tourist visa. You have to apply yeah. for it. Like, I, I didn't even yeah. know that. I was like, bloody hell. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even things like permanent residency, and they apply and they come here. They yeah. can't even transfer their driver's license. Yeah. So I was talking the other day in the office, and like, it's like five or six of them talking about, like, yeah, I've got my test coming up. I'm like, this is like naive me. Uh, why can't you just transfer your driver's license from India to Canada? Like, no, we can't do that. They're like, oh, can you do that? I was like, yeah, I just turned up, handed it in, and they gave me one in Canada that I can drive. They're like, oh, wow, I wish we could do that. But I was like, mm -hmm. India's crazy for driving. Like, I can't drive in India because you don't have any rules. Like, you'll go mixing in and it's like beeping everywhere. I was like, if, if anyone can drive, it's the Indians. They're like, yeah, I know, but. Yeah. When you think about it, it's really inequitable. Like, there's a lot of, it's very problematic how passports work. It's because it's just so inequitable, like how people can access other countries. And like, sometimes I think about it and I'm like, why do we need to have a little booklet to like travel on this planet that we're all on? Like, why are there borders? I don't know. I'm getting like philosophical about it, but no, it's no, just, no, I'm exactly sometimes the same. Sometimes I'm like, this is yeah. silly. <laughs> <laughs> the, I say the clip the other day from a podcast about this, about this need to have borders. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. it, you know, is it fancy world? I don't know. I don't see why we have borders. Like, I, I see it as always one person, mm -hmm. really. Yeah. Um, this idea that, because I, I hate nationalism. I just, I don't. I can't stand it. Like yeah. the fact that you think you're better because you're born somewhere, which is lucky, by the way, is better mm -hmm. than somewhere else. I, I don't really get it. Yeah. So yeah, my idea is the same. Like, why do we have this book that says that you can and can't go somewhere? It's crazy. Yeah. There you go. What I've learned also with privilege in my life here in Vancouver is I have a lot of friends who are from the Asia background, so China, Japan, and a lot of them have talked to me about they can't go traveling, for example, for medium long term or even live somewhere else and I said like, what do you mean because we can like through a Canadian part of Canadian passports but their parents are from Asia right and they have this thing where there's such a strong tie to their family that considering going to live in another country or travel for a long period of time would be seen as almost like abandoning their family mm. and it's a strong tie and bond almost like shackled down right. a little bit where a few of my friends have explained that they can't just go up and go into I don't know, live in UK for two years like they would have mm -hmm. to stay here and help their parents so that's yeah. the kind of, I don't know what that term is for that, but that's a privilege that they said that we just don't have, unfortunately. They, they yeah. do have it, like they can do it, but the, yeah. the repercussions of that decision would be quite strong. Yeah, I think it's a cultural thing because yeah, like cultural, families yeah. are much more unit oriented, where it's like everyone contributes to the family collectively, where I guess like in Western culture, it's not really that way. Like you don't have the same responsibility towards your like parents or siblings um that you have in like some other cultures yeah they explained that this is the the culture that we have mm -hmm. um that even goes into personal 
decisions, which I won't get into. But yeah, so that's got another thing I've learned in my time in Vancouver is that sort of yeah. privilege that I can just go anywhere <laughs> without yeah. repercussions. Yeah. Have you learned a lot about this in your podcast from people who are obviously not white English speaking? Is that what, what you've done? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I've also talked with like wheelchair users and I had on a woman who is blind and travels. Yeah, I've learned about like different perspectives of travel that I can't relate to because they're not part of my identity. And it's been really good. I think it's like so easy to just like, especially because like social media and travel is just so white. Yeah. Um, it's really easy to just see it through that like single lens. Yeah, I ma- mainly I've just learned like even more about how privileged I am because as much as like I get frustrated because traveling as a woman can be frustrating at times. Um, I still have like a lot of privilege in the way that I travel. Like, for example, like if you're traveling in a wheelchair, you need to look to see like what spaces will be accessible to you abroad. So like traveling everywhere is not accessible. So yeah, I definitely think a lot more about these things as I travel. And um, I've also learned to like advocate for people with different like accessibility needs when I travel. So for example, like, one thing you can do is like if you go to a museum and they don't have like um, ramps or like mm-hmm. audio guides or other like aids, you can just leave feedback when you're leaving the uh, museum and say like, hey, it'd be good if you could offer this. Um, so that's one little thing I've started doing to just try to advocate. Okay. Is there anything else you want to quickly finish on with privilege that we haven't talked about? Just a quick dip in. I don't know. As a podcaster and a blogger, I've learned that it's important to not just acknowledge the privileges that I have as like a white hetero woman, but like knowing your privilege is a good start, but it's also important to address them because that's how we dismantle the systems that support privilege. Mm. Um, One way I'm trying to do that is by actively talking about the issue. I know a lot of people like feel a little like I posted a reel about travel privilege. Oh, I think I saw it. That's maybe how I found you. Oh my gosh. We got so many comments of people just angry. Yeah, I saw it. Real. And (laughs) it just made me realize like some people are really scared to think about how they're benefiting in society in ways that like are inequitable. Um, and so that's why I think like it's really important to talk about it. And that's why I've been trying to talk about it, like on my platforms. Um, but yeah, I would just say beyond just acknowledging your privilege, um, a good thing to do is like try to take action to address it as well um, so that we can move towards a more equitable world, not just traveling, but like in general in life. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I saw that real. I think that's how I found you, actually. I liked yeah. it. I commented that this is, this is great. I need to learn no more about this. Mm-hmm. But I was shocked and surprised at all so the was i if we were like getting dms from people who were like oh. so angry about the feel <laughs> oh my god th- 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 there you go that's the problem right yeah 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 yes. it's come to a point it's not too fit philosophical it's come to the point now just in general this is not travel based i think we're at the point in in this society right now where white privilege and male white privilege across the board whether it's politics whether it's social stuff whether it's travel there's loads more questions now been asked about it's just the way we want to go like previously you know there's all these scandals that come out there are nearly always men and nearly always white male like it is the time to ask some serious questions right now mm-hmm. about the, the yeah. systems we have in place government or societal like is this where we want to go and unfortunately yeah. because we i'm saying we as a white male we've had so much sort of control top of this people near the top would be really angry about this because they mm-hmm. it's, it's disturbing the status quo so it's going to be like 
all these yeah. comments coming in they, they don't want to see change but it's yeah. going to happen i mean when you're benefiting from a system there's not a lot of impetus to change it absolutely because you're benefiting yeah um i mean when it comes to like gender issues i think like i mean in my lifetime i've seen so much progress i think like the thing that bothers me though is there's still so many men who can't recognize that patriarchy is not good for men either like sure you have power but there's a lot of detrimental effects as well so sometimes i get a little frustrated because i want to see more men recognize this and realize yeah. that like feminism like isn't just about women it's about men as well like men's yeah. mental health for example benefits a lot um if we can shift away from patriarchy so yeah yeah i'm glad you're chatting about this like no one's ever asked me to talk about uh, this on a podcast so thank you so there's there's a huge opportunity here with feminism with men to get involved and make a change right because we have that power if you like mm-hmm. you know if the top person in the world was like running things and they decided no we are going to do something more inclusive they're using their power to a good cause right so there's an opportunity here for men to just go and try and address these issues and talk about it and try and improve society like why why wouldn't you want to be involved in that yeah like i just notice a lot of men recognize that patriarchy is bad and like support women but you don't see it like in their active life like whenever i'm sure you've seen like in the news whenever some big news event happens that has to do with patriarchy women will often be posting on social media actively talking about it and i always just think like why aren't the men in my community like yeah. also talking about this yeah. and posting yeah. about it um so yeah question. i feel like that's the next the next thing we need to see yeah also well, i love like vancouver for living here i'm going more towards diversity now as well where in my work team there's probably 30 overall white person in general, we're the minority, which is great. Mm. And someone asked me if they like, oh, how do you feel? I'm like, it's brilliant. It doesn't mean anything. Like, it's not, it's not a thing to me where it's like a problem, like, oh my God, I'm a minority. Like, it's mm. actually nice to kind of be on the other side for a change. And yeah. I've experienced that a few times in my solo travels where you're a minority, but it's also good to see that other side because I've always yeah. been in the majority in a lot of countries. Yeah. I've been to. There's beauty and diversity. There really yeah. is. Yeah. Huge topic. It's generational change. Yeah, let's work together, I think. And yeah, I'm always happy to discuss that sort of thing on any any podcast. And I won't hold back on my thoughts. I don't give a fuck if someone's DM me saying, you're a bullshit fuck off, mate. I don't care. Like, <laughs> if, if it feels right, it, it's right. I'm yeah. happy to be proved wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. If, you, if you prove that I'm, what I'm saying is bullshit, then yeah, far yeah. away. But I don't oh think things on this is going to be too wrong with what we're saying now. I will tell you, I got scared off of Twitter a couple years ago when I was in grad school um, because I got doxxed. This is a real thing. Like this is why I guess I got doxxed where I lived. It's basically like when trolls get really upset with you, typically for posting something like political or about feminism or some other issue that like there's pushback on. Um, So I was like very actively tweeting about like feminist issues Mm. and trolls caught wind of it one troll in particular who had like a massive audience like retweeted me with some horrible commentary about me and so i got doxxed which just means like people found my personal information and posted it on twitter and i ended up so terrified that i had to leave twitter like i killed my account and didn't rejoin for several years i think that's why i get so nervous like when i see a reel like people getting angry because i'm just like oh my mm. gosh what are you gonna do to me yeah, that's a fair, that's a fair point. Scary. I don't, do, I, I don't yeah. do Twitter. No. Yeah. I can't deal with it. I don't really either. <laughs> or 
or yeah. I'm very careful about what I post on Twitter now. <laughs> yeah, I don't do it at all, really. Yeah. Um, I think it has the biggest reach, though. But yeah, yeah. no, crazy people. I mean, it makes you think like someone like just a celebrity who's on there, like they must get this stuff all the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know how it's they do so it. Scary. Yeah. yeah. Let's finish the podcast with your podcast. I'll pack my bags. We talked a bit about it in the episodes already. I've got some stats here, actually. You were featured on Apple's new and noteworthy list in 2019. And you were a finalist in the 2020 People's Choice Podcast Awards in 2022. You were featured in the Together section of the Toronto Star and CBC's podcast playlist. And you hit charts in Canada, US, Ireland, UK, and many more. Amazing achievements. And where can people find your podcast? Anywhere. We are on all podcast platforms. Um, just search Alpaca My Bags um, and subscribe. We also have a website, alpacamybags.ca. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we're on Instagram. We're also on TikTok. But if you want to like reach out to us, you can DM us on Instagram. I think our handle is Alpaca My Bags Pod. Yeah, that's where you can find us. I'll put a link in the show notes for that. And maybe give, cool. I know we talked a little bit about it in the podcast episode, just a quick preview of what you're discussing on your podcast or, or maybe what's coming up what's different sure um i would say like to start alpaca my bags is a fun educational podcast um where we explore how to travel in a way that's better for people and for the planet and season five is launching august 31 which is super mm -hmm. exciting yeah and some of the topics we're covering is space travel so whether average oh. people will be able to travel to space in the near future um, we're also covering mental health and travel. We're covering over tourism and we're going to talk about digital nomadism a little bit as well. And oh, yeah. the rise of digital nomadism because of yeah. the pandemic. Yeah. That's a little preview. Those are some of the episodes that you can expect to hear in season five. Fantastic. And because I've not checked out many of your episodes, um, it's on my list. So you have now entered my podcast list as I've got so many, um, but because <laughs> you cover such an important subject. I need to learn more. So I'm going to invest my time. Would you, is there a season that maybe if someone's brand new, you'd say jump into as a, as an easy way in, or would you just start, start from the beginning? I would say I've noticed some people like go back to the very beginning and listen to our early episodes. Um, but I would say like, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Just like do what feels right. I would also mm -hmm. say just like scroll through and if an interest or if a topic piques your interest, like, yeah, to start there i don't think our show needs to be listened to like in order or anything oh, okay okay um yeah. i would also say like i think our more recent episodes are better <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if that's true a lot of people really like our early episodes i just think like we're more organized now than we were mm -hmm. in the beginning um so maybe it's like a better listening experience i don't know you could try like maybe listen to an early one and listen to a more recent one and see which one you like more i don't know okay yeah 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 are cool. you on youtube we aren't we should no. be i know no time about it i'm not either <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, well my new podcast will be but not this one cool and do you co-host as well um so katie is my producer katie yeah. is like a professional podcast producer but also my friend um yeah. so she produces the show and she co-hosts the intro. So you'll hear her in yeah. most episodes um, in the intro, but you'll also hear her pop into discussions here and there as well. She's very okay. much part of the, the show. Does she produce other shows? She does, yeah. Uh, she produces many. Yeah, 
That's awesome. She also has a really good uh, podcast newsletter. If you're like into learning about the podcasting um, landscape in Canada, yep. it's called Pod the North. Pod the North. Okay. On Substack. And it's a really great read. She just covers like podcasts in Canada, like up and coming ones, ones that you should know about, and also just like industry news. Okay. You do seasons. That's your sort of schedule. Yeah. yeah. And do you, just to finish on, you do have guests come on and talk about an array of subjects, right? Do you ever do yeah. like just a solo episode or between you? Basically never. Like every once in a while, usually around the holidays, actually, Katie and I will do a bonus episode. That's just her and I kind of like unpacking our year. I'll mm. often talk about like the travels I've done. Um, but for the most part, like our episodes always feature a guest, at least one guest. Got it. Awesome. Okay. And I'll whack in the links to all that in the show notes so people can access that. Okay. So we're going to finish the episode with my couple of features. I have one for Patreon and one for just a generic quickfire travel question. So my first feature, which is Patreon based, is the travel must have features. So, hey, yeah. Just a quick one before we carry on with the travel questions. I just want to say there are many ways to support this podcast. You can buy me a coffee and help support the podcast with $5, or you can go to my merch store with the affiliate link with Tee Public, where there's plenty of merch available to buy, such as t-shirts, jumpers, hoodies, and also some children's clothing. Thirdly, which is free, you can also rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, or Good Pods. Also, you can find me on social media on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Simply just search for Winging It Travel Podcast, and you'll find me, displaying all my social media content for traveling, podcast, and other stuff. Thank you. It's travel question time. Right. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Let's finish with that. I'm now going to fire some travel questions at you. Okay. <laughs> so these are normally your favorite things. So actually going to start off with a question. How many countries have you traveled to? I don't know, but... Somewhere around 40. Okay. I haven't counted. Yeah. And out of those 40, three of your favorites? I've said them before. Japan, India, Jordan. Okay. And three countries that you've not been to that's on your hit list? Mongolia, Sri Lanka, Tanzania. Nice. And a country that you've not lived in before, but you'd love to live in for a year? Ooh, ooh. Gotta think for a second. There's so many. Iceland? Is that a weird answer? That's great. <laughs> so I love Iceland. <laughs> I think a year there, though, you're going to experience very extreme winter, right? But then you, yeah. you can, so you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. A, a favorite beach that you've been to? Ooh, favorite beach. Okay. Last year, I went to Praia da Barriga, which is on the west coast of Portugal, yeah. and it blew my mind. Okay. And do you drink coffee? I do, yes. So if you can pick one city in the world... To drink coffee and watch the world go by where do you drink your coffee oh that's such a good question one city in the world new york i love okay. new york yeah and do you have a, a favorite coffee like a country's favorite coffee no i mean i drink coffee every country i go to i ooh, i loved egg coffee in vietnam oh, vietnam I had it in hanoi mm. um hanoi is also a good city to like drink oh yeah 100%. have coffee and just watch the world go by because yeah. Hanoi is so like crazy oh, isn't it? so vibrant yeah. yeah um but also like any coffee I've had in Central America has just been oh. mind-blowingly good yeah okay if you could pick one view for the rest of your life 
that you've been traveling and you've seen. So that could be like a beach, could be a city, it could be the wild plains in Africa, it could be a forest, a jungle, whatever it is, one view, rest of your time, what view would you choose? Oh, that's so hard. I hiked to see Volcan Fuego erupt in Guatemala. Guatemala, yeah. And it's probably not sustainable to have that view for the rest of your life, but like I could watch a volcano erupting nonstop. It's just yeah. like mind blowing. I just, nothing has blown my mind as much as seeing that did. So was that a tough hike? I'd love to see that. Yes, it was very hard. <laughs> yeah, okay. What about three favorite cities? Oh, it's so hard. Cause I just, I love, I, I'm a city person. I really, I love nature, but I just, I appreciate a good city. Mm. Um, I really loved Amman. I just, I loved wandering that city. Mexico City, Kolkata. Oh. Definitely a city in India. I loved yeah. India cities. Okay. And a favorite walk or trek? Oh, the hands down, the hike in Guatemala, yeah, Acatenango. I, I thought you might say that. Yeah. Okay. And do you have a favorite party place that you've traveled to? Ooh, going back to my 20s. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> Cuba was really fun for partying. Oh, I can imagine. Did some really fun partying there in caves. They often like have like nightclubs that are inside caves. Oh, wow. Um, it was really fun. Yeah. That's mental. Okay. I can do that again. Uh, I would 100% do that. What about <laughs> a landmark? Can be man-made or nature? Oh, I know it's cliche, but the Taj Mahal really was like, I, I was not prepared for how much it would amaze me. It was yeah, really it worth me. It's worth seeing. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, what about a favorite cuisine or food that you've experienced in your travels? Ooh, okay. So this one's tough because I have very severe food allergies. So oh, okay. I can't be very experimental when I'm traveling and oh. eating. Um, cause yeah, just everything's dangerous. <laughs> wow. So I'm very, very careful. Yeah. But I, when I was in Turkey, I had, I can't remember what it was, but it was like, it was like some sort of meat curry that was cooked in a clay pot and they yeah. bring it to you and then they break the clay pot so that you can eat out of it. <laughs> and I always think about this. It was just so delicious. I would love to have that again. And also just like Indian food in general. I was so scared for my life every time I ate in India, but like it was worth it because the curries <laughs> were so good. <laughs> it's, it's up there for me. It doesn't quite beat Thai, but I think India's number two. Yeah. Unreal. I couldn't eat anything in Thailand. Like there's peanuts uh, everywhere. I was so yeah. scared. Is it not an energy that you have? Yeah. 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 My, uh, my sister's partner's got that as well. Mm. They, they came to visit Canada and she's vegan and he has a nut allergy. He's vegan as well. So vegans with Ooh. nut allergies is, is tough because a lot of vegan That's food really hard. has nuts yeah. in it. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. And what about a favorite, maybe high adrenaline activity that you've done? I don't really do a lot of high adrenaline activities. I'm trying to think, what have I done? I mean, I've done zip lining. Does that count? Yeah, like, yeah, 100% I didn't it does. think it was yeah. that, like high adrenaline, like riding a bus on the side of a cliff to me was terrifying. Oh, Nepal, we had that. <laughs> terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, that's high adrenaline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Being Canadian, this will be a good question. Do you have a favorite lake? Ooh, all the lakes in Canada are incredible. Yeah, amazing, aren't they? I'm going to say, okay, no one will know this, but Bass Lake, because it's sentimental. It's okay. north of Toronto. My family lives in that area. Yeah. Spent a lot of my childhood swimming in that lake. Um, yeah, it's just a basic Ontario lake, but I love it. Okay. And what about on your travels, 
the nicest locals that you've met? Oh, it's hard because you know what? Like people have been so nice everywhere. I would say I don't、mm. know that there's anywhere I've ever gone where I felt like locals were like not nice. Okay. But I was really blown away in Japan by how nice people were. People、yeah. offered us help when they could see that we were like struggling because、um, signage like is、yeah. never in English. So、yeah. sometimes we were like clearly struggling to find our way, and people would often come up to us and offer to help us,、mm-hmm. and that really stood out to me. So yeah. Yeah, I can add to that because Emma left her purse in the metro station in Tokyo. Oh we yeah. Got, we got to the hotel, realized it's missing. Uh huh. And it was、Somehow、there when we went back. They rang. The metro station. They've taken it in. They wrote a list of everything that was in it to make、wow. sure that when Emma said, "I've lost it," they're like, "Oh, what did you have in it?" Because we got a list of the things that was in it when they found it, and she went there and found it, and it was there. Wow! Like unbelievable.、Yeah. We, we now remember where it was. It's just sitting on top of the ticket machine that you do, which is oh yeah. I don't know how someone take it, but hey, unbelievable. Yeah, truly. Okay, couple more questions. Which is the country that's been the best value for money? That you've seen. I'll name a few. Vietnam is really accessible.、Uh, India, of course.、Mm. I mean, it's a sliding scale. You can do India on a big budget, or you can do it on a small budget. I would say those two are the ones that like really stand out to me. But like most of Southeast Asia, I found like pretty accessible financially.、Um, Central America as well is not super expensive to travel. Okay, cool. And the last question, which I ask everyone, is if someone's thinking about traveling right now, but it's maybe a bit scared to go. Talk about obviously privilege right now,、um, which is obviously going to hinder that. But like a bit of advice or words of wisdom to say, hey, you know, try and make that leap, try go traveling. What would you say? I would say baby steps.、Um, start with something small. You don't have to travel far. I think when people think about travel, they think about these like big overseas trips. Maybe take a train to a nearby city and start with that. Get into a hotel, see how it goes for a weekend, and then next time go a little further or for a little longer. Um, it's totally okay to ease into it, and it's also totally okay to just travel in your own backyard and enjoy that. So, yeah, baby steps. Awesome. Okay, Erin, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been a great chat. Thanks for making time, and I've really learned a lot. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun chatting with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to my Winging It Travel podcast episode today. You can find me on Instagram at James Hammond Travel or Winging It Travel podcast. You can search for both. I release weekly clips of this podcast episode, as well as photos from the last eight to ten years of my travels. You can also follow me on TikTok, Facebook, and Pinterest by searching "Winging It Travel Podcast." I do release daily content to do with travel and the podcast throughout the week. Also, check out my website jameshammond.org. There's content about myself, my travels, and there's also a newsletter sign up as well as a contact form. Finally, please rate and review the podcast on Podchaser. This is my platform of choice. Alternatively, you can rate this on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from. This really helps the podcast gain a bit of traction for the future in terms of guests and content. And I'm glad to see that you guys are listening out there, reviewing it, and enjoying the content so far. Stay safe, stay humble, keep listening, keep traveling, and I'll catch you soon. Cheers, James.